square fielder. He's gone to the dogs. Welcome everyone to the Gone to the Dogs podcast. Steve Fielder here with you. It's Winter Classic Week. How about that? Uh, this podcast is airing on Monday, and on Wednesday, I'll be jumping in the old Ford and heading up to Birmingham, Alabama, to the home of Nubbin Moore. And he and I will uh, head out on Thursday morning for Batesville, Mississippi. Uh, should be a great time up there. I always enjoy going up there. I can't believe that it's been uh, four or five years since I've attended the Winter Classic. Um, we started that thing back in 1988 in Albany, Georgia, and uh, it took off and, and uh, just became a, a great event there for the Southeast. And a few years ago, uh, the licensing body, UKC, decided to move it out to Batesville, and they do have a wonderful facility out there. And uh, this year, uh, the powers that be at UKC and the hunting ops department asked me to participate in the judging of the uh, bench show. So I'll be out there uh, taking a minor role, actually, but uh, I guess when you consider it's uh, naming the overall winner of the uh, top 100 in the shows for 2023. Uh, maybe not such a, uh, a small deal <laughs> after all. I do appreciate very much the uh, opportunity and look forward to seeing all those great-looking hounds out there. They set this thing up really nice there in Batesville. It's all in a big arena there, a rodeo-type arena uh, this thing is huge. I mean, they haul dirty in there and have monster trucks and rodeos and all that sort of thing. Uh, there's uh, seating all around the arena uh, up on the mezzanine level or is where the entries are taken and, and the food concession and the restrooms and all that. And then these old knees <laughs> don't do so well on all those stairs that it takes to get down to the arena. But I will be there uh, with a booth this year for the Gone to the Dogs podcast. And I do appreciate so much the folks at UKC that provide that for me. And I'll be there with the equipment and we'll try to get some uh, live recordings from the arena and, uh, but at any rate, uh, that's coming up uh, this coming Thursday, Friday, and Saturday in Batesville, Mississippi. Uh, so anyway, I look forward to seeing a lot of you there. I'll have some books with me, The Gone to the Dogs, A Coon Hunter's Journey. I will have some copies of Full Crime magazine that uh, I, I was supposed to ship them. Uh, to Jason and Danny Doobie uh, following the Grand American. And I haven't gotten that done yet, so with their permission, I'm going to take them out to, uh, to Batesville, and those will be available at the, uh, at the Gone to the Dogs booth for a nominal fee. Uh, if you walk through the checkout at your grocery store and pick up one of those for home improvement or or uh, how-to magazines or whatever, you're going to pay 20 bucks for them. 
uh, I believe you can pick up a single issue of Full Cry for $5. And uh, we'll have those uh, there. And uh, old Nubs, my traveling partner, will will be there with me. And we're certainly looking forward to uh, seeing all of you. We're going to be staying out there at that John Kyle um, Park, State Park on Sardis Lake, where we usually stay. And uh, really enjoy that. It's just a, a rustic atmosphere. A lot of coon hunters stay out there in the cabins that are available for rent. So um, that's where we'll be hanging out when we're not at the the, the uh, Civic Center there in Batesville. Um, this issue, issue, episode of Gone to the Dogs I'm going to change it up just a little bit from what we normally do. I usually have a guest, and as you know, I just recently had two separate tribute episodes, one for my longtime friend Bill Wickham of of, uh, Lanark, Ontario, Canada, and then just this past week, uh, the tribute to Winston Aaron, uh, Mr. Aaron, who passed away at the age of 90. Uh, and we all will forever remember him for his Schooner River Tree and Walker dogs. But what I wanted to do, I guess we could put this thing in more of the public service announcement category. And I've thought about this for a long time and uh, just wanted to share an experience that I had with the hope that it will help you, uh, and in fact, in the extreme uh, case, may even save your life. Coon hunters are notorious for staying up late, perhaps not staying in the best of physical shape, and um, just generally not taking care of themselves. Now, I've never been a health food nut. <laughs> Anybody that's seen me since, uh, especially since the pandemic, I've put on some weight, and that's constantly on my mind that I want to re- lose that weight. But uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about a danger to your health that comes with stress. I know life is stressful. There's a lot of things that uh, cause us stress. Uh, Our employment usually is the main uh, culprit. Uh, And, of course, along with our employment goes our ability to earn money to feed our families. And we coon hunters know I just went down to a feed store and looked at the prices on dog food, and and uh, most bags, 44 pounds or so, or $75 and up. So things are expensive nowadays. Inflation is taking its toll. So we can stress over uh, whether or not there's going to be more month at the end of the month than we have money. So that's a stressful thing. Sometimes it can take the form of the relationships that we have at work. 
in our families and even in our homes. So life can be stressful at times. But the point I'm trying to make here without uh, preaching you a sermon uh, or trying to wade into all the stress factors in our lives that, that could cause us problems, I do know from personal experience that stress can make us very, very ill. I want to share an experience with you. Some of my closest friends have heard this story before. But the only reason I'm sharing this story with you is to perhaps help you to avoid a situation that I found myself in. It was the first week of April back in 2006, and I was working at the American Kennel Club as head of the Coonhound department there. I had been given a promotion to assistant vice president. Um, I was on the corporate management committee. I had a large budget to oversee, and I was attempting to rebuild a coonhound program for the American Kennel Club that had gone by the wayside. I was putting in 14-hour days sitting in front of the computer. Uh, there were a lot of things going on. We were trying to build the number of clubs across the country. We were uh, trying to increase the numbers of events. We were planning major events. Uh, we were, uh, you know, putting out the brush fires that come with with those events and Besides working uh, the the job on the outside within the corporate structure of that uh, corporation, there was a lot of stress. I had to attend a lot of meetings. I had to uh, answer uh, a lot of questions. I had to be producing results. And without going into all the details, that uh, was at times very stressful. In order to get away from the stress a bit, I'd planned to go out to a local coon club in Burlington, North Carolina, and attend a UKC licensed night hunt there. I was hunting a little walker female that I liked a lot. Her name was Stone Stylish Kelly. I got her from Alan Wilson and Chris Allen. She was out of PKC's uh, all-time money-winning female at that time, Mill Creek Molly, and her sire was the PKC world champion, Silver Dollar Stone. I really liked Kelly, and uh, she was very competitive, and I thought, well, I'll go out and hunt with the boys, and uh, that will be a good uh, stress reliever, give me some outdoor activity, get me out from behind this computer screen. On the way to the club that evening, I stopped at a Wendy's and grabbed a spicy chicken sandwich and wolfed it down because I was running behind and I didn't want to miss the deadline. Uh, I uh, got to the club in t on time and we drew out, and I, as I recall, we went north of the town of Burlington, uh, up along the uh, Orange and Alamance County lines. 
uh, we turned the dogs loose, had a four-dog cast, and um, right away we got struck and had a good little race, and they put it in a bulldoze pile of old uh, pushed-over timber in the corner of a field. Uh, one of the younger members of our cast was uh, up on the pile catching dogs and, and handing them back out uh, to the handlers. And uh, there was one dog, a walker female, that did not go into the wood pile. And as we pulled out of there and got the dogs uh, back out of that uh, mess, uh, she was declared treed. So we walked uh, our dogs on leash into her tree, and sure enough, she had a raccoon. So uh, that put me behind, as well as uh, two of the other dogs. And we walked up on top of a hill and cast the dogs down a across the pasture field toward a woods that lay uh, on the other side of this little valley. Uh, the dogs got struck in there, and they were running the track. And uh, it wasn't hot, but they were moving it fairly well and opening quite a bit. And it was at this time that I noticed that I had a lot of pressure, and I thought it was just indigestion, um, having, you know, inhaled that uh, spicy chicken sandwich, I figured, well, I can, you know, burp this up and everything will be good. So I just stepped off to the side of the other hunters there a little ways as we were listening to the dogs. And I attempted to inhale air and, and make myself burp. And I wasn't having any luck. <laughs> and the pressure was starting to build right in the center of my chest. I tried those normal uh, exercises that we do at times uh, when heartburn or, or some kind of indigestion or whatever affects us. And uh, I wasn't doing any good at all. And the more I tried, the more I realized that this was a different feeling uh, situation that I normally felt with just uh, gas pains. So I made the decision that I was going to withdraw my dog and uh, go back to the truck and see if things got better. And if not, then I would take further action. Well, I told my cast members that uh, I was having an issue and that I was going to withdraw and ask if one of them would catch my dog at the next tree and uh, take her back to the clubhouse. And I'd make arrangements to either pick her up there myself or have someone pick her up. They agreed, and uh, so I started back to the truck. Now... I didn't have, we didn't have garments at that time. And uh, I may have had a handheld Garmin comp, uh, GPS unit, but it wasn't of the type that we have today that had the ability to track a dog. 
I remember as I went back to toward the truck, and I wasn't sure exactly where it was, that uh, the pain was getting more uh, intense. Uh, I had read somewhere uh, not long before that that if you uh, are fearful or suspect that you are having a heart attack, that you should cough. And so I began to cough as hard as I could. Uh, and uh, I recall that a couple of times on the way back to the truck, I had to sit down on a log and rest because the uh, my breath was not coming very easily. Now, I'll pause this right here just a minute to say that I had noticed some faint warning signals uh, in the form of being short of breath. My office was on the second floor of the building, and uh, in order to be getting some exercise, I would walk up the stairs to my office instead of taking the elevator up. When I would do that, I would notice that I was a little short of breath. And just a short period of time before this hunt, I had taken our company photographer with me out to a club, and I wanted to shoot some pictures of the dogs treeing and uh, just overall action photos of a night hunt to use in publicity in uh, magazines and online. Uh, we went down to a club that was holding an AKC event, and we asked to walk along with the cast, and of course they were fine with that. And as we went out, and uh, uh, the dogs uh, struck a track and went some distance, and of course the cast members wanted to keep up you know, within hearing of the dogs. And I noticed that it was a very hot uh, evening, even though it was uh, springtime, that, uh, you know, I was really short of breath. And at one point I had to stop and just kind of bend over and really try to suck the air in. I was having trouble uh, getting enough air. And I thought, well, I'm just really out of shape. And uh, this air's a lot thinner down here, maybe. Well, no, it wasn't the thinner air. It was heavier air uh, because of the humidity. And that's what I was thinking. The point I'm making here, guys, is, you know, these excuses that we try to make when things don't feel just right with us uh, can be warning signals that we need to pay attention. But uh, I'll go on with the story. At any rate, uh, by the time we got back to the truck that night, I had had to stop again and try to, uh, to get my breath. So I had some warning signals that I, because I was busy, because I had an active lifestyle, because of this and that, I just simply ignored Okay, I'm sitting on these logs and I'm 
coughing and all this. And the only thing that's on my mind is getting back to the truck where my phone is and calling 911 because I believe by this time that I'm having a heart attack. When I get back to the truck, and I did find it, thankfully, <laughs> Uh, the guide's daughter was sitting in uh, their truck, and I asked her uh, to give me the name of the road that we were on there, and she told me. And so I remember getting in the truck, and and by this time I'm kind of in a hurry. And I throw the truck in reverse, and I back up, and I glance in the rearview mirror, and just in a split second I hit the brakes and if I'd gone any further at all I would have t-boned another truck that was how uh, excited I guess I was at the time and really was not paying attention I did get out to the highway and I turned and she told me which way to go when I hit the highway well I turned um I picked up the phone and I dialed 911. The 911 operator answered right away and asked me my location. I told her I wasn't sure, uh, that I was north of Burlington, and I believe the name of the road was Asbury Road. I could be wrong about that. And uh, I she replied, well, I'm not sure where you are. And I said, well, I'll read off some mailbox numbers here and maybe you can locate me. And she questioned me at that time about driving while in the process of having uh, chest pains. And I said, well, I'm going to continue to drive until you determine where I am. And it wasn't very long till I... Uh, came upon a highway marker that said uh, the Alamance-Orange County line. So I told her where I was, and she told me to stop immediately and that she would send help. I did that. I remember pulling off the side of the road, and and the road kind of uh, uh, the shoulder gave way at an angle so that when I parked the truck, it was angled down uh, toward the passenger door. Um, in just a few minutes, a local fire department ambulance showed up along with a deputy sheriff's car. Those people, I know they intended uh, to be helpful, but they really didn't do anything for me. Um, I did, uh, it was difficult to get out of the vehicle on the, uh, the passenger side. Uh, but anyway, I, uh, I got my waders off and by that time I was beginning to sweat and, uh, not really get nauseous, but it it was, you know, I was beginning to feel it a little bit. And, of course, these things are 
the things we read about, about when you're having a heart attack, that you might have pain in your shoulder or arm, which I did not. Uh, you might have pain in your jaw, which I did not. But you may uh, get sweaty or clammy and all. The only thing that I had was an ever-increasing pressure in the center of my chest that felt like I had heard before, like an elephant stepping on my chest. As I sat there with that uh, ambulance and the uh, uh, deputy sheriff, which by that time had called uh, for for backup from uh, Burlington, uh, I just, uh, you know, tried to relax. By that time, the cast had come out of the woods, and coming up the highway, they saw my truck pulled over to the side, facing over that embankment. And I know <laughs> I was told later that some of them thought that I'd, uh, uh, you know, collapsed right there and had a wreck. But at any rate, uh, they agreed to take my dog back to the club. I told them I'd have someone pick her up. And I waited. And in just a few minutes, uh, one of those big square ambulances uh, that you see uh, flying down the highway came up and there was a crew in the back and they immediately got me in the back of the truck and they uh, put uh, nitroglycerin uh, under my tongue and they gave me baby aspirin and they hooked me up to an EKG machine. And away I went to the Alamance Regional Hospital in Burlington. When I got to the hospital, I learned that they had summoned the cardiologist that was on duty. Um, he was soon in the emergency room with me. Uh, he, uh, I noticed that he was uh, taking my situation very seriously. Uh, and uh, he told me that he wanted to give me what they called a clot buster shot. Uh, this shot, uh, I've been told that it's like uh, anti-venom shot that you would get for a snake bite. Uh, but I had to sign a release in order for him to uh, administer that shot. And he asked me if I if I would do that. And I said, Doc, I will do anything to get rid of this pain that's in my chest. And by the, that time, they were giving me painkiller, I think some morphine or whatever. But the pain was getting harder and harder or more intense. I never lost consciousness. I never got sick, uh, and I never had any other symptoms. When he administered the shot to me, almost instantly the pain left. Uh, and uh, I was much relieved uh, about that. Uh, in the meantime, the uh, hospital had called my wife uh, she had called my son in Chicago. They had gotten on the phone and made arrangements uh, for a motel there in that area. And uh, 
Anyway, I was taken to a room in ICU and uh, remember a very nice nurse there. But at any rate, I was scheduled to have a heart cath the following day, and I did. And I'll cut to the chase on this. The heart cath came back that I had two severely blocked arteries and that they could not be uh, opened with stents, that I would have to have uh, bypass surgery, uh, what we would normally call open-heart surgery. Um, and uh, I was asked where I would uh, like to have that surgery, and, of course, that part of North Carolina is known for some great hospitals there's the University of North Carolina Hospital. There was Rex Hospital there in Raleigh, which was very good. But perhaps the best known is the Duke University Hospital. And I told the doctor, I said, well, I've always heard Duke is one of the best hospitals in the country. And so that's where I'd like to go for my surgery. As it would uh, turn out, um, the surgeon that was assigned to my case was the chief of thoracic and cardiovascular surgery at Duke, uh, Dr. Peter Smith. And uh, he, uh, I was just looking at the website there. Uh, he's still at Duke, and he's been there for over 40 years. But he had been the chief of that department since 1994, which was about 12 years uh, when uh, I went to see him. At any rate, uh, they checked me into Duke. I had the, uh, the, uh, all the prep and everything that goes in it along with it. They put me on a gurney, and down the road I went, and I remember them prepping me for surgery, and the next thing I remember was a very dim view of a couple of guys in, in scrubs working all around the foot of my bed, and they were busy as they could be doing this, doing that, and uh, I had gone through the surgery successfully. It was about six hours. Uh, there were two bypasses done. I was told there was another one that was um, blocked but was small and uh, uh, it was not necessary to bypass it. Um, and uh, I was also told in follow-up uh, sessions with the doctor that uh, I had acted quickly this is the point I want to make to anyone that's listening to me today. I had gone into or called 911 quickly after I started experiencing chest pains. This is the thing I want to stress to you fellas is that if you have chest pains or you're dealing with chest pains and you think it's just indigestion, go in, get checked. Because here's the problem. If you let it go, and I was told this over and over again, it can cause severe heart damage, damage to your the muscle of your heart 
that cannot be repaired. Thankfully, I did not have any heart damage. And here it is, 18 years later. I'm doing great. I don't have any heart issues. I do go to a cardiologist regularly, and I do take medication. Because once you have heart disease, you always have heart disease. But I'm very thankful, and I wanted to share this story with you, my listeners, because I believe that it can help you should you ever find yourself in the same predicament. So just remember, guys and gals, women can have heart attacks too. When you get those pains that seem unusual and so forth, don't be embarrassed to go into the emergency room. If you're in a situation where the pain is debilitating and you you can't drive or whatever, you call 911. Act quickly. Don't sit around nursing that pain and trying to be a hero. I've spent quite a bit of time with you here today telling you about this experience. Not for your sympathy, not for any, not that I'm a, any kind of hero for having endured it, simply for the fact that I want you to be able to enjoy the sport. If you're an older guy, look at me 18 years later and I'm still enjoying it. And so. Uh, I just wanted to pass that on to you. I hope you find it helpful. And uh, hopefully you're taking care of yourself and you're exercising and you're watching your weight and uh, you'll be around for a long time to come. While I was at uh, Grand American, I uh, succumbed to (laughs) the... Temptation to buy a new light. I uh, have been perfectly satisfied with the light I've been using for several years now. But when I was out at the White River this year, I began to experience some uh, some problems getting enough light on a coon to uh, dispatch him. And uh, I heard something the other day while I'm mentioning this. I thought it was really funny and they didn't really apply it to raccoons at the time but uh, uh, I'll adapt it to the raccoon did you know that a raccoon is a very happy animal they only have one bad day and they don't know when it's coming so that's for those of you who like to harvest the coon now someone gets on your case about them about it just tell them that one bad day and they don't know when it's coming i guess that applies to all of us doesn't it but anyway i picked up uh at the grand american there were a lot of light vendors and man there's a lot of good lights out there and i've always said well lights basically just you know, a battery, a switch, and a, and a bulb or a LED. And that those are the basic elements, but there's a lot of nice features on the lights nowadays and all. But uh, I've always uh, kind of admired and talked to a lot of my friends uh, 
and I've had uh, him on this podcast. That's uh, uh, Ray and uh, Conrad with Bright Eyes Lights. And so I bought the Bright Eyes uh, Heat Seeker Pro edition and uh, had to go to school on it here. And I did take it out uh, this past Saturday night. I went uh, pleasure hunting for the first time in a while here in Florida with my friend uh, Mac Britt invited me, and I went along the road with Mac and and uh, other friends, uh, Jeff Glisson and Kurt DeMar went along with us, and we went up to the wildlife management area that is just northeast of me about an hour, and we had a good hunt and treated a couple of coons and uh, and uh, rewarded the dogs. I guess you'd say the, those two coons uh, had their bad day. But uh, anyway, I really liked the light. Uh, Ray's done a good job with it. I like the controls, the, the walking light, amber, and red and and the plain white light and there's a laser with it and uh, uh, it it sits on my head and uh, balanced well and <laughs> I got the one with the uh, plastic helmet I didn't really think about it I usually use those hybrid uh, the cross between the soft cap and the hard hat but. Uh, Anyway, well, I'll try to give you a report as time goes along as I use this thing more. But so far, uh, real, real pleased with it. Uh, yeah, the technology that goes into these things are amazing. I, I just looked at a video that Ray produced, and he talked about how he brought the Heat Seeker brand out last year, and now he's got the uh, headlights ten percent brighter and the. Walking lights, the amber and the white are ten percent brighter. Uh, the red, I think, is still the same. But um, and then, of course, there's that laser that really helps when you're uh, trying to show a coon to somebody else. And uh, so, anyway, uh, I don't know that I needed a new light at all. I tell people that. My coon hunting card's about to be uh, uh, revoked if I don't use it <laughs> more often. As I've been doing these podcasts, I I get quite a bit of mail. And the mail comes from all different types of people, and covers all different types of, of subjects, uh, mostly related to to the sport, I get a lot of calls. In fact, I got one today from people interested in where can they find a, a plot pup. And I, folks still associate me with a plot breed. I think probably more than the other. And I'm, you know, I'm not a breeder anymore. I don't breed plots. I don't know really anybody that has any for sale right now. I do believe that most people that are breeding plots or any other breed right now are doing a much better job, a much more conscientious job in producing their crosses than it used to be back when I started out uh, along this road. Uh, there were a lot of pup factories and puppy mills 
around and people just saw dollar signs. And, but the consumer now is much more informed, you know, because of the Internet and the magazines. Uh, there's a lot of information out there about these dogs, about the crosses and about, you know, how uh, uh, these puppies are going to bred. And, and these, uh, for instance, the uh, Coon Hunting Conversations group that I started on uh, Facebook and uh, Alan Bridges manages it and uh, – there's a lot of good information out there, and people ask about a, sud, a certain stud dog or what kind of a dog was he, what kind of nose did he have, what kind of, uh, you know, was he a, uh, a go-yonder hunting dog, was he a track straddler, was he ill on the tree. There's so many questions, so many answers, so much information. I know you have to sort through it to get to the truth sometimes, but uh, there is really a lot of information out there. But uh, when people contact me and ask about training pups, um, I try very hard not to come across as being a know-it-all because I certainly don't know it all. And I look at new methods that come along or read about methods and I'm interested in learning myself but I always did enjoy training pups it was something that was just a big part of my experience with the with coon hounds and I used to oh pride myself in saying that I I didn't buy pups I did buy that uh, Kelly pup that I mentioned before the walker female and I bought a plot pup or two along the way. Uh, I didn't buy started dogs. I didn't buy finished dogs. Uh, I like to train my dogs myself. Now, a lot of guys would say, man, I don't have time for that misery. I don't want to put up with that. I don't want to put up with the noise. I don't want to put up with the crazy actions, the trash running, the... Uh, all the different things that, that you know, that cause uh, trainers or hunters to uh, pull their hair out at times. But uh, I've always enjoyed working with puppies. And I think as I see dogs that are for sale and they're at an age, you know, where they should be started and doing pretty good. Uh, not coon dogs, of course, but but good started dogs. But they have holes of one kind or another. Uh, one won't hunt the way the owner expects it to. Another won't tree the way it, the owner expects it to. Another doesn't have the mouth that the owner expected. Um, another one uh, needs some social skills, doesn't get along well with other dogs, and on and on. And people ask me how to correct these problems. And I always go back, well, I always think about it, to myself, and it's a little too late for these particular uh, hunters that are experiencing these problems, uh, 
that maybe if the pup had been handled right and given a, a right start in life, uh, these problems could be avoided. But I also know that this is not always the case. Sometimes these problems uh, raise their heads at the best that we can do. Now, I think that all of us, if we say that we want this sport to go on, we want it to continue, we want to go to a club and have a good entry there so we can win more money. Let's tell it like it is, guys. If we want to do that, we've got to have more people involved in sport. And when a young person or a new person comes along and is interested in the sport, we need to do everything humanly possible to help that person get a good start. And part of that sometimes is helping them deal with the problems they have with their dogs. I'm just going to give you a thumbnail sketch here of the way I start puppies. This served me well down through the years. Uh, and th there's just going to be an overview. I'm not going to get into specifics here. Uh, but I'm going to devote about 15 minutes to this. And hopefully it will be helpful to someone out there. First of all, we uh, a friend of mine experienced a situation where he purchased a young dog recently and discovered on the first time out, first or second time out with the dog, that the dog was gun shy. Of course, he hadn't been told that by the seller, uh, but he found out the first time that he uh, uh, discharged a firearm around a tree where this dog was. The dog was afraid of the gunfire. Now, the dog's sense has made uh, some really rapid improvement, and uh, I don't expect it to be an ongoing problem. But that's just one of the things that can be avoided when puppies are very small. The first thing, you know, being a houndsman, a dog person, person that loves dogs, when I raised a litter of puppies, I spent a lot of time with them. I handled them daily, several times a day, uh, you know, running my hands all over them. Uh, checking them for any defects, cleft palates, uh, any anything uh, that was out of the ordinary. I looked for them. I checked them. I kept a journal. The last litter of puppies that I had, I did this, and I posted a lot of the progress of those pups online when I did. But they, uh, you know, I would take a... Uh, spiral notebook and I would draw an outline of a puppy uh, as if it were laying on its back. Kind of looked like an outline of a bearskin rug. Okay, and if the pup had any special markings or anything, now I'm talking plot pups and they're going to be all brindle on the back. You could do it the other way around with uh, spotted dogs like walkers or English or blue ticks. But anyway, I uh, indicated uh, the markings on that pup, and I numbered the pup. 
and I would weigh the pup periodically. At first, I would weigh them every day to see if they were gaining weight properly. But I just spent time with them. Whether you go to that level or not, it's not as important as it is that you spend time with that pup, touching the pup, socializing the pup, getting them used to you, getting them used to human interaction. Um, puppies uh, generally get their eyes open in about two weeks. Uh, my father and I wean many, many pups, and the oldest that we would ever leave uh, puppies on a bitch was about five weeks. And I know that my friend Randy Smith takes them off before that. Uh, you know, and uh, soften that food uh, with milk and maybe some warm water or whatever and uh, and let them begin to eat at an early age. This pays big benefits to the female. Uh, the pups don't bag that female down, and I always hated to see that in in a in a bitch that was you know all bagged down from those pups pulling on her so long, so late. Anyway, I'm, I'm slowing down here, so I need to pick this up. Spend a lot of time with them. Okay, when they get up. Uh, old and, and of course we know all about the regimen of shots. We got to give them the the normal vaccinations. Have to give them the, do the wormings on schedule. I'm not going to go into all those regimens right now. You need a healthy pup. Let's face it. You need to feed them a good, well balanced uh, meal, uh, kibble, or whatever you choose to call it. Anyway, once we uh, have got this pup on its way and it's healthy and all, as soon as it's big enough to be outside and wants to run around and play and so forth, hopefully you have an area that you uh, in your home or yard or a field out back or whatever that you can let the pup run and play. You need to do that. Get them out as as soon as you can, walk them in the woods. Walk them along pathways at first and then uh, maybe uh, go through a little uh, brushy area or go across a small creek, across some rocks, uh, you know, under a fence. Anything that you can do to expose the pup to the outdoors. Now, if you have the luxury of having a place to turn that puppy loose and let him run loose during the day. Absolutely do that because that will pay big dividends. The pup will learn more on its own and by its litter mates than you can teach it in, in all day's time. So anyway, that's, you know, getting the pup to the point where all the new goes away. That butterfly is new that that frog that that jumps into the creek that's new uh anything that's out there that's different from what he's used to in the whelping box or in the kennel is new to him at first 
So get them out there, expose them to as much of that as you possibly can. Most of the time when I raise puppies, I expose them to a cage coon at about four months old. And when I say expose them, I did not take the coon in a cage and take it into their kennel and try to hit them on it or anything of that nature. I would take a coon in the cage, sit it out in an area, maybe around behind a building or something, take the pups out on their normal walk, and uh, if they discovered the coon, just let them go at their own pace. If they want to bark at it, fine. If they want to run from it, fine. If they want to circle around it and all, that's fine on the first exposure. And I will back up here just a minute to say that I also do some scent training with my pups. I've always done this. I take a hot dog and cut it up in little medallions, about a quarter of an inch length. And I'll put those in a plastic bag, and I'll go out and let the pups follow me, and I'll toss it out ahead of me, toss a piece of that meat ahead of me and just walk in that direction. First thing you know, the pup's going to smell that that piece of hot dog. It's going to start using that nose, finds it, eats it, gets the reward. And, you know, I just keep that process going there for maybe the uh, length of time it takes to use up a whole hot dog in the process. Then a little later on, I may set it up on a, on a post or up on the, uh, running board of the truck or up on the tailgate or whatever and get them looking up and smelling and locating that meat uh, with their nose. Those are just little exercises. My dad used to set the feed pan up on the fence post and they would uh, they recognized the pan. Naturally, they wanted what was in it, so they would begin to bark. And, of course, they could smell the feed. It's all just little exercises to get that pup using his nose, looking up, doing the things that you're going to expect him to do once he starts uh, on game. So that's uh, pretty much how, you know, get them started at first. Now, on this cage coon thing, what I two methods that I've seen that work really well. Perhaps the best method is to have a yard dog, uh, a, you know, a family dog, maybe a little Jack Russell or some sort, to that will bark at that coon. And I've watched this so many times. That pup, at first, may not even be interested. But then he's going to start wondering, what's this dog barking at? What's going on over here? I'm going to go over here and I'm going to smell and see or, or look and see what's going on. Well, usually what happens, he goes up there and he runs his nose right up against the cage. And what does that raccoon do? He growls and jumps at the pup. And the pup usually jumps back. And if the pup acts a little afraid at that point, don't worry about it. This is where, again, I'll caution you, though, don't try to move that coon toward that pup. 
let the pup do all the movement at this at this stage. More times than not, the pup will stand back some distance and begin to do what I call booger barking at the coon. He'll just he'll be baying at the coon and uh, you know cussing him, but not getting up close enough for that thing to do any harm. Of course, and that's exactly what you want. But little by little, you can what? Once he starts doing that, just let him go and see what he does. And if he comes up and he starts to uh, to bark at the coon and bay at it and all, take your foot and just jiggle the cage a little bit. Now, a few years ago, the rolling cages came out. This was a uh, cylindrical cage made of wire, a wire all around two hoops. Uh, make a cylinder with a door in it, put the coon in it, fasten it, and, uh, you know, you can kind of move the cage along like a, a, a hamster on a wheel. And uh, that triggers the desire of that pup to chase. And uh, that's kind of what you want. And the thing about the cage coon, though, is once the pup, is showing you that he's interested in that coon and he wants to bark at it, I would uh, maybe do it a couple of times a week or so apart, three at the most, but I wouldn't do that anymore. The next stage that I would like to take the puppy into is the stage where he gets to chase the coon and has the opportunity to use his nose to bark up at the coon. Now, some people would say, well, it, along this way with the caged coon, I like to uh, toss a rope over a limb, pull it up, let the uh, pup bark up at it, and that's fine. But again, that should be part of your uh, coon in the cage exercise and only do it once or twice three times at the outside, and uh, uh, it doesn't hurt to let them look up. Now, one of the ways that my dad and I did this years ago, and it worked extremely well, is involved having a live coon in a cage and placing a burlap feed sack in that coon cage so that it absorbed plenty of that coon scent. The coon was on, in those days, we had a collar, a dog collar on the coon, and a chain. Uh, when we decided to go training, we would take the coon out, uh, put it in a training cage like you would normally use, and just uh, tie a piece of burlap twine onto that sack and then tie the other end to the cage just so you didn't have to fool with it. So as you're carrying the cage coon to the woods, the scent, scented sack is being uh, drugged along the ground. When you get to the woods, you're going to raise that cage up as high as you can into a tree. Um, 
Now, keep in mind, at this point, the, the puppies are still in the kennel or in the truck. So what you're going to do then is, once you've secured the coon up in the tree, you've taken that sack and rubbed it around all on the tree, and you've either taken it away or placed it up uh, on the cage so that it's out of the reach of the puppies. You go back to the truck or to the kennel. You let the pup loose, and usually one or two pups at a time is what I like to work with, uh, rarely more than that. Take the, uh, let the pups out and just begin to walk in the direction that you have taken the coon. The pups, if you've used the hot dog method that I described, they're going to be searching the ground for a treat or a scent uh, that they uh, like, and they're going to smell that coon scent. If they've seen a caged coon a time or two, they're going to know what that is. And in most cases, they will take that track and they will follow it to the tree where you've left the coon. Now, it's been my experience over the years that pups generally don't bark on drags. One of the exceptions to that was when I did so many training sessions with the late Ed Mead in Michigan. Those blue tick puppies of his would open on a drag just like they'd open on a hot coon track. But Generally speaking, the dogs that I've trained are not uh, too prone to open on a drag, but some will. Not important. The important thing is, is they follow that tree, uh, that trail to the tree. Now, if you've got the coon up high enough and all, those coon uh, pups will have to, uh, you know, use their noses to locate the coon. They may smell it there on the tree where you've rubbed the sack or they may be winding it from over their heads but uh, if they uh, tree and tree properly and you're happy with the way they're treeing you have the option of either letting the coon down and letting them bark a little bit at it on the ground or just leaving it up there and taking them away that's your choice I know some guys would say well I'd rather just leave it up there and let them be thinking above their head. And I can't argue with that at all. So that's the way basically I get a puppy started. The next step would be to take that pup out with an older dog once it is old enough to keep up with that dog. Today's pups are, are bred to go, and they've got a lot of energy. They've got a lot of drive. And sometimes when you take them out with another dog too early, it uh, causes them to run dog tracks. Uh, anyway, then the next step would be, and we'll talk about this some more as we go along in future episodes, the next step would be uh, once that puppy is start started running tracks, perhaps with the older dog, and treeing with the older dog or by itself, then it's time 
to separate it out and take it on its own and let it find the track and run and tree it by itself. And we'll talk about that in more detail as we go along. Anyway, folks, we've been at it an hour and four minutes, and I know you're tired of listening to this whole growling voice. I do appreciate you for listening to the Gone to the Dogs podcast each week, and uh, I'll be back with uh, guests Jim Meeks and uh, Tom Gilroy next uh, week. We're going to talk about our Grand American experience. We're going to talk about those Yankton River dogs, and we're just going to have a good time, some good conversations. Uh, Until next week, if anyone asks you where is that old worn-out coon hunter Steve Fielder, tell them, well, you know the story. He's gone to the dogs. Mm-hmm.